Okay. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them with me to Mark 5 this evening. Verses 25 to 34, determined faith. The last time we were together in the book of Mark, we walked through the biblical account of Jairus, a ruler of a synagogue, who petitioned our Lord concerning his 12-year-old daughter who was sick and dying. And as Jesus walked toward the house of this man, an event took place which we chose for the sake of time and focus to skip. And today we come back to that event that took place on the journey from the seaside to the house of Jairus. And uh, we'll begin in verse 24 for context. It was actually in verse uh, 21 where we uh, saw Jairus come, uh, well, Jesus depart from the ship, then Jairus come and petition the Lord to follow him to his, his house where his daughter was sick and dying. And so we recall that from last time. And we jump directly from verse 23, uh, then on to verse 35. Uh, this week we'll begin in verse 24 for context. The Bible says, uh, um, And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him, and thronged him. Verse 25, And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. So Jesus is walking toward the house of Jairus. He was being thronged, as we might expect. People are everywhere. He has no personal space uh, to speak of. And we've seen this several times throughout the course of Mark, where he's just, just thronged with people so much so. Early in the book we saw, uh, he was actually unable even to really get a bite to eat, right? He was uh, becoming exhausted and weak because he was not able to eat because there were just so many people around him all the time. And it is here that we are introduced to a certain woman. And the Bible says that this woman had an issue of blood 12 years. So the same year uh, that Jairus rejoiced in the birth of the daughter that, at, that was at that moment sick and dying, this woman had contracted a disease of some sort which had dominated her life for the better part of the, that decade. And having a disease was bad enough. Having had a disease for 12 years, uh, some of you perhaps have had uh, chronic issues that you've uh, lived with for, for years or, or, or even decades, and you can understand uh, this idea that you can be, be empathetic or sympathetic to someone who is dealing with something uh, for, for a, a, a long period of time. But this particular issue is, uh, in, in a manner, unique. Um, within Jewish culture, there was something very distinctive about this disease, which made it much worse than just even the disease itself. And we learn about this distinction from the law of Moses, specifically in Leviticus 15. In Leviticus 15, beginning in verse 9, the Bible, 19, excuse me, the Bible says this. And if a woman have an issue, and her issue, is in, uh, in her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything that she lieth upon uh, in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. Um, yeah, I must have, uh, let me. 
Something goofed up with a slide there. We'll just continue. You get the idea. Verse 22. Uh, and, whatsoever, and whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean to him. Okay, there we go. And if it be uh, on her bed or on anything whereof she sitteth, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until the even. And if any man lie with her at all and her flowers be upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And all, so in other words, if her, if her blood touches him, he'll be unclean seven days. And all the bed whereon he lieth shall be unclean. And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, so beyond seven days, um, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. Every bed whereon she lieth, all the days of her issue shall be unto her as the bed of her separation. And whatsoever she, sh she, she sitteth upon shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her separation. And whosoever toucheth those things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. So the book of Leviticus is an, uh, expounding upon various civil and ceremonial laws which God handed down to the nation of Israel as the terms of their covenant with him on Sinai. Among the many expectations for sacrifices and for holiness and for obedience and for order and for justice, we also see laws directly pertaining to the condition in which a person may interact with the congregation of Israel or with the tabernacle. These were the laws of cleanness, and they were instituted to express to its adherents the tremendous difference between themselves and the God that they served. God is holy. He is not just perfect. He is the very definition of perfect. It is not just that God is perfect. It is not just that God is sinless. It is that perfection and sinlessness are defined by God himself. He is the definition of perfection. He is the definition of sinlessness. He is the standard for perfect. The standard for perfect is set by the character and the attributes of God. And the laws of cleanness existed to preserve the holy character of God and of his people. So that if a person was unclean, he was removed from the assembly and disallowed in the presence of that corporate worship or in the presence of the, 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 the tabernacle or of the temple until such time as he was ceremonially cleansed. And in this cleansed state, he was then free to interact with this temple and with the holy nation, the holy God. But one of the interesting things about this uncleanness is that it was not focused upon elements of transgression. Uncleanness, generally speaking, did not come about through sin, through rebellion, through iniquity. Those things were wrong. Those things were trespasses. Those things had their, their own necessities as it related to coming before the altar and giving their sacrifices and all of those things. But a man who had done such wrongs was not unclean. He was guilty. He would come to the tabernacle with that guilt and with a lamb, and he would offer the trespass offering, and that lamb would die, and the shedding of that blood would make atonement for his sin. Uncleanness was something different. Uncleanness was, not, was connected not directly to a man's choices per se, it may have been, but to the things that he encountered in the process of living life. Touch a dead body, not a sin, but now you're unclean. Now, you could either not touch a dead body for the entirety of your life, or you could say, nope, necessity compels me. I'm going to need to touch this, but I'm going to become unclean. You're unable to present yourself before a holy God. The congregation of God's people may not touch you unless they too become unclean. 
until you're ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed. And an, uh, uh, an unclean man does touch you. If an unclean man touches you, not a sin. But you, now you are unclean. You are unable to present yourself before a holy God. Well, say, I, I didn't have a choice in the matter. He touched me. I didn't know he was unclean, or he didn't tell me he was unclean, or he touched me even though we did know he was unclean. Well, well, okay, but now you're unclean. The congregation of God's people may not touch you until you're ceremonially cleansed. A woman has a child. She's now unclean. She's unable to present herself before a holy God until she is ceremonially cleansed, until she is through the days of her cleansing. And sometimes this would mean some sort of action, right? Other times it's simply a set period of time. Sometimes a person could do something to be ceremonially cleansed. Other times they needed to wait a certain amount of time, sometimes both. And what this means is that even apart from known sin and the unavoidable condition of our hearts that inevitably leads us to fall short of God's glory through sin, even in Israel, apart from all of the known iniquities and guilts that they could uh, transgress as a part of the nature of transgressing the law of God, just living life would bring about conditions by which a man would be, in a sense, separated from God, from his tabernacle, from his congregation. God, through this, proving that even if we could and we can't overcome our sin nature and stop sinning, just the very elements of our functioning life, biological realities, societal necessities, compel in us an uncleanness which separates us from the character of a holy God. Even all our righteousnesses, Isaiah 64 says, are as filthy rags. And let's be clear here, uncleanness was unavoidable in Jewish life. And in that time, there were true sacrifices to be experienced for that. Now, as those who were unclean could not go to the tabernacle, and even those loved ones in their lives must keep their distance for a duration of uncleanness, consider, as we think through that idea, that specifically the uncleanness that's mentioned in Leviticus 15 that we read. A woman with an issue of blood was unclean and was to be put apart for seven days. This speaking directly of a standard menstrual cycle of a woman, generally no more than a week long in any given month. So she would be set apart for that week and every month she would be within this state of uncleanness for these seven days. Anyone who touched her during that week would be unclean till even of the same day. And if anyone touched her or her bed or her clothes or anything that she touched or sat upon, there was the seven-day standard... And then if she continued beyond that, if the issue continued beyond that, then that would be, seven days would be the minimum, right? It could go beyond that. Now, verse 25 tells us that if the issue of blood did run beyond those seven days, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. So she would normally be separated for those seven days, and in those seven days, no one could touch her without becoming unclean. No one could interact with her in, 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 a, in a direct manner without becoming unclean. No one could sit on the bed that she, she sat on. No one could sit on the couch that she sat on. No one could touch the clothes that she touched without becoming unclean. And then, of course, she could not go into the tabernacle for that time or the temple, as the case may be here. Carry that back with me into Mark 5 now. We find a woman who had experienced an issue of blood, and she'd been experiencing that issue for 12 years. 
Consider the implications of this. Now, the woman had been perpetually unclean for 12 years. And everything that that perpetual uncleanness would have demanded of her. That means that she's not entering the, tab- the, the, the temple complex. That means that anyone who has touched her or touched anything that she has touched for 12 years is now unclean. For 12 years, she's been, in that sense, alienated from the house of God uh, and, and to a degree from standard human and civil interaction. Jesus, at this time, when, this, when we see this woman, Jesus is being thronged by a crowd. I would imagine this woman didn't do crowds because if she is in the midst of a crowd, then she's touching people or those people are touching her, which means she is making people ceremonially unclean as they're jostling and bumping into her or brushing past her garments or whatever it might be. She was unclean and she had been unclean for 12 years. Now, we recognize that the ceremonial law makes provision for the fact that people would uh, end up touching, uh, interacting with people when they're unclean, right? The idea that a woman uh, one week out of every month was, uh, was, was completely outside of, of being able to be touched was probably not something that happened within society. However, the degree of human interaction that she enjoyed was most certainly dramatically reduced. And every time someone did come and interact with her on a level of of personal touch, they all knew what that meant. Ceremonially unclean until evening, till the evening of that day. And so there would be that consequence every time. How often then had she interacted with people, friends, family, sitting in her house just to have a conversation Enjoying a hug from a loved one. I'm sure it happened. (coughs) Excuse me. But here's the thing. If it's exceedingly inconvenient, you're probably going to reduce it, right? Should we go over to so-and-so's house? Well, if we do, you know what it means. Yeah, maybe we'll just wave today. Whereas you would maybe otherwise interact in a different manner when that person has been unclean and will be unclean and will, will, anything they touch is unclean, it's going to change the way you interact with them. Now the Bible says that this woman had spent everything that she had to fix this problem. She was desperate to fix this problem. But not only was she none the better for all of the time and the effort and the money that she had put into fixing this problem going to whoever it was that they would have gone to in that day with the insights to try to help her. But the Bible says that not only was she not better, but she rather grew worse. Things were getting worse. And this woman thus must have been absolutely desperate and broken. Completely discouraged. In fact, I feel confident that for all the words that I could use to try to describe her emotional state, I've probably not been able to adequately illustrate the kind of sorrow, exhaustion, and frustration that this woman felt as she was in a manner alienated from some of these meaningful things of life. Verse 27 and 28. When she had heard of Jesus, and and picking up here with the woman, when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. 
For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. So this desperate, broken woman hears of Jesus and people are being healed and the lame walk and the blind see and demons are cast out. And she thinks within herself, if I may but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Now consider the significance of this thought in light of what we know from Leviticus 15. In Mark 10, we see the account of the blind man named Bartimaeus begging outside the gate of Jericho. And we'll get there, of course, when we get to Mark 10. When he heard of Jesus of Nazareth, the Bible says he cried with a loud voice for mercy and Jesus calls unto him and says, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole and immediately the man receives the sight and he goes his way. Jesus didn't need to touch anybody to save them. Jesus could but speak a word. Moreover, this woman didn't ask Jesus to touch her she reached out to touch Jesus. This woman potentially could have stood apart from the crowd, stood afar off, cried to Jesus like Bartimaeus did, asked him to heal her from afar and make her clean for the first time in 12 years. Or this woman could have cried out and said, Jesus, would you but touch me? We've, we saw that. That was one of the first miracles we saw in Mark, right? A leprous man came to Jesus, another unclean man. And he says, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And you remember what Jesus did? He didn't just say, I will. He touched the man with leprosy and said, I will. Be thou clean. So Jesus was even willing to touch the unclean in order to cleanse them. But in this case, she said, I will touch him. What immediately came to her mind when she heard of him is that she needed to touch but his garments. And this is kind of crazy, right? I mean is the way to endear yourself to the prophet to go touch him without his permission and to make him unclean until evening. For this woman to touch anyone in that culture without their expressed knowledge and consent would be somewhat unthinkable, I would imagine. Because the moment she touches him, even his garments, she is, he is, excuse me, unclean. And it was interesting, as I was studying for this message, there were many who suggested that her desire to touch Jesus' clothes showed an imperfect faith. That uh, it showed that she was thinking that there was some sort of perhaps magic or mystical aura around Jesus that accompanied him so that he was some sort of good luck charm uh, in, in the, the vein of many pagan cultures where if they can but you know, touch this thing, kiss the Blarney Stone, whatever it is, uh, that there's luck, that there's, uh, that there's power, that there's something within it. And, and I saw that come up several times as I was, I was looking into this, but... I, I don't agree there. I don't agree that her desire to reach out and to touch him, uh, thinking that there's some sort of aura around him or some sort of mysticism or, or, or magic or whatever, I don't, I don't agree that, that's, that, that that shows a faithlessness of sort. I mean, if she did think that, then it would. But I'm not convinced that that's what she was thinking here is what I mean. This woman knew that all things being equal for her to touch Jesus would make him unclean, right? That's what the law says. That's what is prescribed. She's experienced that for 12 years. If I touch anyone, I make them unclean. But re recall what this woman reasoned in her mind as she reached out to touch Jesus. She reasons not that if she were to touch him, he would become unclean. Instead, she says, if I touch him, I will become clean. 
Now, that's a pretty amazing way of thinking that she had, isn't it? I believe that there's a true faith here, a tremendous faith, that this woman who understood the law, who understood what the law prescribed, also understood the kind of man she was dealing with. And she was convinced that the character and the power of this man that stood before her would be so much that when she touched him, he would not become unclean, rather she would become clean. And so she came into the press, probably around a crowd for the first time in 12 years. And the Bible says she touched his garment. And then an interesting thing happened. Verse 29. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. She touched his garment and she was immediately healed. Her confidence was well-founded on that day. The faith that she had that in touching this man he would not become unclean, but that she would become clean was well-founded on that day. Immediately upon touching the hem of his garment, the bleeding stopped, and she knew immediately that she was healed of her disease, of her plague. And Jesus also immediately knew what had happened. The Bible says in verse 30, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now, Jesus immediately knew what had happened. He immediately knew that virtue had gone out of him. The word here in the Greek is a common word for power, strength. However, we might imagine virtue is a kind of an interesting translation here, but actually understood in the context of when the King James Bible was written and edited. This is an excellent translation. When we want to know what an English word means in our King James Bible, it is not always the most useful thing to go to a modern dictionary. Anyone who studied any language, whether it's ours or another language, understands that language is a very fluid thing. Language uh, evolves over time, changes dramatically over time. It's one of those reasons why it's kind of always a little comical, and I think many of you think it's so, when you see someone with a King James 1611 uh, sort of label on something uh, because no one is reading a King James 1611. Most people that have King James 1611 on something can't read a G King James 1611 because the Old English is dramatically different than the updated English that was actually 1769. And so we, we see that language changes. And because language is a, fl a fluid thing, the definitional usage of words, even words that have hung around in our culture, the definitional usage of those words has changed pretty dramatically since 1769 when the King James was last functionally updated. So if you want to know what the word meant in 1769 when they were last updated, you want to go to an older dictionary. And the dictionary uh, that we rely upon in King James study is the Webster's 1828. And that's the dictionary that we find most useful as it relates to understanding the words as they were meant in the 1769 King James, because Noah Webster built, the, he, as he put the dictionary together, he did so with the King James Version in mind. And so we go to the Webster's 1828, and we consider the definition of the word virtue. And the word virtue means this. The radical sense is strength, from straining, stretching, or extending. And the first definition is this, strength that substance or quality of physical bodies by which they act and produce effects on one another. That's what the word virtue meant in 1769. 
1828. The substance or quality of physical bodies by which they act or produce effects on, one, uh, on other bodies, excuse me. So virtue is a word derived from the Latin word ver, meaning man. It was, in fact, a word in the Latin, virtus, right, to describe the qualities of strength and excellency and character and worth. Over time, the word virtue had be, has, has been used specifically to speak of ethics, speaking of the quality of moral character. A virtue is, is, a, is a moral quality now. If a person is a virtuous person, if a woman is a virtuous woman, we are talking about her character. We are talking about her moral qualities. But as we look in Webster's 1828, it carried in the English a quality of effect, whereby one has a power to produce an effect on another. And that power that he has to produce an effect on another would be his virtue. His virtue is the power that he has to produce an effect on another body. So when this woman touches his garment and she is made whole, what went from him was his virtue. His power, the power that he had to affect another, went out from him. Therefore, this is, in fact, an excellent translation of what was happening when Jesus' power, as, as it were, went out from him and healed this woman. The woman touched Jesus' garment. The effectual power transferred from him to her, so much so that she was healed. And so then Jesus turns around and he asks, who touched my clothes? And this elicits a bit of a response from the disciples. Verse 31. And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee? And sayest thou who touched me? So Jesus says, Wait a minute, who, who, who just touched me? And the disciples are like, Everyone? <laughs> there are people everywhere, Jesus. You're thronged perpetually. Everyone's touching you. Everyone's touching me. It's gross. Everyone's touching everybody. You're being thronged. What do you mean? Who touched you? Verses 32 and 33. And he looked around to see her that had done this thing. Looked about, roundabout, excuse me, to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing not what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. So Jesus knew what he was asking. He knew that there was a particular person who had touched him. And that's what he was asking about. And he also knew that the person who he was asking who touched me, that touched him, knew that he was asking and of whom he was asking. The disciples didn't understand. Jesus wouldn't have expected them to. They couldn't be expected to. But this woman surely did understand who touched me. And so Jesus looks around to find that woman. And the woman, in this state of fear, the Bible says, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. So Jesus knew what had happened. He stopped to address it, and she, trembling, fell down before him and told him all that she had done. Not exactly sure why it is that she's afraid. Maybe she's afraid because she was an unclean woman who touched this man. Uh, maybe uh, because she still couldn't process what had happened to her, one reason or another. Uh, she was trembling and fearing what might happen? Maybe he would be angry at her for the presumption of touching him without his permission. And, and um, in, in the, the, the sheer confusion in her mind, probably, ecstasy 
uh, fear, all of these emotions happening at the same moment as she's been healed, she simply falls down before him and she tells him all the truth. And Jesus' response is wonderful and beautiful. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So Jesus responds as the character of God regularly informs us he would. He tells her that her faith has made her whole, that she doesn't need to be fearful, that she doesn't need to tremble, that she doesn't need to be anxious, that she doesn't need to wonder, that she can simply go now and live in peace, healed from her plague. Yes, it was Jesus' power that healed her. Yes, virtue had gone out of him and healed her, but it was her faith that enabled her to tap into that power. Because it's always faith that enables us to tap into that power. It is faith that pleases God. It is faith that connects us to the power of God. It is faith that connects us to the grace of God. It is faith that connects us to the character of God, the blessings of God. And if you need the power of God, you must always walk through the door of faith to get it. And she walked through that door. She stepped out in faith. She touched this man's garment, believing that she wouldn't make him unclean, but rather that he would make her clean. And her faith was, was what connected her to that virtue. And so she didn't need to be afraid. She didn't need to be sorry. Jesus says, go in peace. Be whole. Don't be afraid. Go in peace and be whole. Don't be guilty. Be at peace and be whole. And as far as we know, that's what happened. She left her knees and she lived happily ever after, as they say. So let's talk about what we've seen here today. You perhaps see the metaphorical applications that can be drawn from this. And I'm not going to boil it down to points this evening. Um, I simply want to walk along the trail of truth with, with, uh, with, with Jesus and this woman on this one. We're introduced to a woman that's in a helpless condition. And in this woman, every one of us can see ourselves of a sort. We can, of course, see the unbelieving state. We can, of course, see the person who is uh, outside of Christ. We can see the person who might be trying as hard as they can with everything that they can to come to the throne of God, the religious person, right? Uh, the, the person who uh, is desperate to find relief from their sin, who is desperate to find forgiveness. Uh, but, but no matter how hard they try, they, they always fall short of it. They cannot escape the guilt that they feel in their heart, though they've tried and they've done everything that they can. I meet a lot of these people in the jail, I meet a lot of these people who, have, who, who are using drugs or alcohol specifically because they cannot escape the guilt, the shame, the fear. And some of that is the guilt, the shame, and the fear of their own actions. Some of that is the guilt of things done unto them, the shame of things that have been done to them in their life. And because they cannot cope with those things, they end up uh, fleeing to that which will allow them to forget. What, they, what, what, what they're feeling so that they don't have to feel anymore. 
So we can see certainly the unbeliever in this, but as I just said, we can also see in this those who, it's not about their sin before the, the throne of God. It's not about whether or not they've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, but also that person who's dealing with that guilt, that shame, that frustration, that fear. We're all sinners and we know that. Our need for a savior goes beyond just sin though, doesn't it? Your need for a savior goes beyond just the need to be born again and go to heaven, doesn't it? I already talked this morning. I gave the gospel this morning. We talked about salvation this morning. That's an obvious application here that I'm just gonna go ahead and, 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 and uh, um, briefly touch on. That when we were outside of Christ, when we are outside of Christ, we are without any power within ourselves to save ourselves. We have no power to do good before God in a manner that is meritorious. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. No amount of going to church, no baptism, no amount of money, nothing that we can do can make us right with the true and living God. And in fact, the more we try to do, the more there is a chasm between us and God as we realize the, the distance. Paul said that, when the, that, that he was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and he died. The idea there was not that before the law or before he knew the law, he was not guilty. The idea was that the more he learned about the righteous character of God and the more he learned about the law, the more he realized how dead he was, the more he realized how separated from God he was, that, that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that as we see the righteousness of God all the more and as we try all the harder to live worthy of the righteousness of God, we actually make it worse, right? Our guilt gets worse, our shame gets worse, our distance from God gets worse, not in that it actually is getting worse, but that we realize just how far we are in that state. But in due time, God sent his son to die for the ungodly. When we were without strength, God sent his son to die for the ungodly. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever will recognize that in the day that I come to Christ, I will be made clean and flee to Christ to be forgiven of my sins. Belief, whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be saved. And so we see that application here. But as Christians, I think we might be able to see some things here about this woman also. Because interestingly enough, this woman's dominant problem was actually not a sin problem, was it? Again, not saying she wasn't a sinner, not saying she didn't need salvation, but her dominant problem was not a sin problem, was it? It was the effects of a world of sin upon her body. And she had done everything in her power to fix that. And she had devoted decades to this pursuit. And not only did she not make it better, but she had made it worse. She drained all of her resources and it only got worse. And you know, I think as Christians, sometimes we can do this too. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. We recognize that there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves to heaven we acknowledge that it is by grace alone, by no meritorious work of my own. And yet, once we step into the Christian life, we say, okay, God, now that I'm a Christian, I have Jesus by my side, I'm going to solve all of my problems. And we forget 
that it is not for me to solve all of my problems. It is for Christ to work himself in me. And so you have that Christian who's struggling with that sin. And they say, I'm a Christian. I ought to be able to overcome this sin. I need to discipline myself more. I need to try harder. And they live in guilt and they're racked with shame because they just can't get over their sin. And they keep trying more discipline and they keep trying more, more effort and they keep trying everything and it's not working and they're still racked with that same sin because they forgot that the same way that we live the Christian life is the way that we come to the Christian life, which is by reliance upon Jesus Christ alone. And so we as Christians try everything and we tap into all the wisdom of man and we tap into all the wisdom of the, of, of, of the commentaries and all of the ways that, that we know within this world to, to find our, our, our way through our emotional battles and our spiritual battles, dealing with frustration, dealing with guilt, dealing with sorrow, dealing with shame, dealing with uh, a, a besetting sin. And so we go to all of those worldly wise ideas and we've spent the thing, the, we've spent what we need to spend and we're patient and we give it time and we give it effort. We've scraped every last ounce of effort out of our own capabilities and the problem isn't solved. And you're emotionally distraught and your relationships are still in shambles and you still aren't happy and you aren't fulfilled and you have no more direction than before. Only you've expended all of your options on this earth. In fact, you've probably regressed because now your body, your mind, or your soul are exhausted and you don't even have the strength to maintain, to just grab a hold and hold on for dear life. Christian, we live in a broken world and it's a world full of broken people. And there's some of those people that you can tell are broken people. It's very obvious they're broken people. They look broken, they act broken. That brokenness is external and it is evident. And then there are those who don't look broken, but still are. And we Christians are very good at being that. At not looking broken, but being broken. Now, it's not something inherently to be ashamed of, to struggle with something emotionally, spiritually, because we do live in this broken world and this broken world will produce broken people and, and this broken world will also tax every person. But what we find here is that Jesus did not just come to help sinful people come to the end of their lost state and be born again. He obviously did this. But Jesus also came to help broken people. People who, whether account of their own choices or the choices of others through no direct fault of their own, have been brought to a place of spiritual, emotional brokenness. People who have come to the end of their own solutions, to the end of the world's solutions, and who are not only not healed, but worse than when they began. And what Jesus shows us today is that broken situations are not hopeless situations. That this broken situation, whether it be shame or fear or regret or disillusionment or discouragement or confusion, 
these things that bring brokenness. Number of times that we fall into these things, not out of rebellion, not out of iniquity, not out of determined evil, but only because life is full of brokenness. And the question is not whether or not you will come to these circumstances because we will all come to these circumstances as we interact with a broken world. We will come to circumstances of liars and cheaters and stealers. We will come to circumstances of sorrow and of pain and of confusion. We will come to circumstances of, of, of anger or of guilt. The question is not whether or not you will, you will come into contact with these circumstances. The question is, what will you do with them when they confront you? And this is where we find the wonderful example of this woman. This woman was in a place of brokenness. She had tried everything that the world knew to try to fix her problem, and it didn't work. Then she heard of Jesus, and she did the only thing that was left to do. She reached out in faith, convinced that this man named Jesus of Nazareth could heal her and make her clean, and so she touched him. Now, that's a no-turning-back moment for her. If she is an unclean woman, touches this rabbi and gets caught, who knows how society would respond? Would they banish her? What would they do? We don't know. But it did not matter because she knew that she had no other option. And her faith compelled her to seek unto this healer to do for her what every solution that she and her society had at their disposal simply could not do. And she was determined not to be denied. And this is what is so neat about this woman's story. We talk about this idea that we come to Christ to be made whole, that we enfold into Christ, that we live into the knowledge of Christ, that instead of just white knuckle disciplining ourselves out of sin, that what we do in this life is that we draw nigh to God and he draws nigh to us, that we actually allow Jesus Christ to work in us himself. And as he works in us himself, then that sin that, we are, are, uh, that, that, that besets us uh, works out of our lives as we become more like Christ. Why does this happen? This happens because as we become more like Christ, not only do we assume the mind of Christ, which changes the view that we have of said sin, to where I used to like that sin or desire that sin, but as I'm changed into the mind of Christ, I no longer want that sin. But there's another reason why I no longer want that sin. Another reason why I no longer want that sin is because if I step into that sin, I know that it will separate me in fellowship from Christ. I won't lose my salvation, but it will separate me in fellowship from Christ. And I say that sin that I enjoyed, that pleasure of sin for a season is not worth what I will lose to gain it. It is not worth losing the fellowship that I have with my Savior Jesus Christ in order to indulge that sin, to indulge that lust, to indulge that anger, to indulge that selfishness, to indulge that resentment, to live in that place of shame, to live in that place of guilt that alienates me from the life of God. It is not worth it to be in that place. So instead, I choose to follow Christ into that which he has taught me of himself. And I pursue that with all of my might. And I pursue that with all of my faith. And I am single-minded in that vision of that pursuit that if I may but just touch the hem of Christ's garment, if I may but just learn that little bit more of my Savior, that he can make me whole. Where before I was not. 
And the tenacity of this woman is the tenacity which every single one of us will need at times in our lives, where we cannot get over the hump of our own emotional or spiritual difficulty, where we are staring something in the face and we've tried all the normal stuff, right? You've tried all the normal methods of discipline and, and, and of changing routine and of calling someone and of whatever it might be to try to find your way through and it just hasn't been enough and what you need is to touch Jesus. Is to get a little bit closer to your Savior. To trust Him a little bit more. To understand what He's saying a little bit more. To believe it a little bit more. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. You've tried every solution that you and your society that is around you knows to solve your situation. Maybe it's sin, maybe it's sorrow, maybe it's confusion, maybe it's fear, but you have fled to all of those solutions. But here's the question. Have you fled to Jesus Christ himself? Have you fled to a knowledge of the holy? Have you sought to allow the mind of Christ to be in you? Have you yielded yourself to do things his way? Are you willing to set aside your rights your will, your solutions, your expectations, and assume upon you a little bit more of Christ. And in doing so, will you allow Jesus to be for you what you might otherwise want to be for yourself, but which has failed you, failed to bring you to the place where you need to be? And if we want out when we find ourselves in that place of brokenness, this is the way out. But it's a way that must go through faith. Through that door of faith, through that door of humility. Not without a brokenness of spirit that surpasses the brokenness of the circumstance. Will you find your way out of it? If you want out, there's a way out. But not without determined faith. And may that be our determination this evening. May this woman be an example of the kind of tenacity to seek after the person of Jesus, the virtue of Jesus, the power that is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, to deliver us through his spirit if we will humble ourselves before him. May we be men and women of faith, falling back upon the virtue of Christ as taught to us in the Holy Scriptures to deliver us from the brokenness of this world. And let us seek unto Christ for those solutions which we all know we simply do not have within ourselves. And which, while this world seeks after them with limitless time and money, we know that they will never find until the day that they find the Savior. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.